0: been a sweet week. We had the opportunity to celebrate God's work in the lives of our collegians Friday evening at David and Leanna's place and with Will and Sarah as well there. And then after that, we were able to celebrate Randall and Molly's wedding yesterday. And uh, in all of these things, the Lord has really blessed us tangibly with heavenly relationships in Christ. It is not a pie in the sky. It is not something future. It's not completely what it will be, but as we think of the lives that the Lord has brought into our church and into our lives, and He's blessed us with, He is indeed a faithful God who has fulfilled His promises and poured His love and His goodness into our lives. And our focus this morning Is going to be on the heavenly relationships that Christ gives. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to start in Ephesians and then we'll go back to the Gospel of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. Ephesians 5, 1. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Well, how are we to be imitators of God as beloved children? The Apostle Paul then goes on and explains it to us. He says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among us saints. Then he goes on and talks about filthy talking. And move to verse 5. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone, no exceptions, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And it's in this same chapter As part of this primary command, as we walk through, we see there are these opening commands, and then everything that follows comes under this big command. As part of this primary command, to walk in love as Christ has loved us, to be imitators of God as beloved children, the Apostle Paul specifically calls out Christian husbands. Verse 25, same chapter. Husbands, imperative. Love your wives. How? How? as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then in verse 31, a little bit lower, the Apostle Paul quotes Genesis 2, 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And it's with these God-breathed words the Apostle Paul reveals to us that from the beginning, our relationships are entirely a creation, a work, and a gift of our holy and eternal Creator, especially the union of a man and a woman in God's covenant of marriage. And from the beginning, God's holy desire and design for our relationships with one another and especially our marriages is that they would be heavenly, not of this fallen earth. That they would be a divine celebration and picture of the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, what God has done to save sinners through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That our relationships and our marriages would be a celebration and picture of God's holy and righteous love that unites God's beloved children with Christ and in Christ. And this is a holy and righteous love that is, like the God who gives it, faithful, forgiving, and pure. Faithful, forgiving, and pure. And therefore, as Jesus explains to His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, this is a holy love that does not tolerate Unrighteous, unfaithful desires and relationships. It does not tolerate unfaithful and unrighteous desires and relationships because they are contrary to the character and the will and the heart and the desire and the design of our Heavenly Father for His children, for their relationships with Him and for our relationships with one another. Brothers and sisters, our relationships were given as a sacred gift from God that would celebrate His holy love for us and in us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's turn back to our text for today, Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to ask you to have a look at verse 20 to start with because that opens this section of illustrations that Jesus is giving about the righteousness of the kingdom that is required. And then we'll drop down to verses 27 through 32. Jesus says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. then as we come down a little bit further to verse 27, he says, You have heard it said, it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. These are the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, these familiar words, especially the last ones you heard, are frequently used as a proof text for Christian divorce and remarriage. That's typically where we hear them come up. When is it okay for a Christian to get a divorce? When is it okay for a Christian to get remarried? But, brothers and sisters, Jesus never gave these words to be a legalistic recipe
1: for Christian divorce and remarriage. How do we know this? Because what we often ignore is the context.
0: And Jesus introduces this entire series of illustrations and examples of the righteousness of the kingdom in verse 20. And he does so by telling the disciples and us, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And righteousness, brothers and sisters, what is right and wrong before the Lord according to his word, righteousness is ultimately about a right relationship with God. A right relationship with God, according to His Word. And at its simplest, this is what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is all about. He's drawing a distinction between the self-righteousness of this world that damns us to hell that of the scribes and the Pharisees and all religions and religious leaders of this world. What do I need to do? How many boxes do I need to check? What are the do's and don'ts? Just tell me what to do so I'm legit. Jesus goes blow by blow by blow through these illustrations and examples and says, if this is the way you are going to interpret God's word and this is the way you're going to walk, you are going to be damned to hell. It is not a righteousness that is pleasing to God, that brings a right relationship with God, and that's going to bring you into the
1: kingdom of heaven. This is not my righteousness. Jesus is talking about a right relationship with God,
0: where every aspect of our lives, from inside out, our hearts, our desires, our relationships are faithful and accountable to Christ and His Word. Faithful and accountable to Christ and His Word. As opposed to the self-righteous and self-serving traditions of men that are faithful and accountable to what works best for me. This is what Jesus is addressing. And this brings us to our First point for this morning, our relationships are accountable to Christ and His Word. Our relationships are accountable to Christ and His Word. Brothers and sisters, how often do we think of our relationships with our friends, with our co-workers, with our fellow members in the church as being accountable to Christ and His Word? How often do we think of how my actions are going to affect the others who the Lord has put in my life? My wife, my children, my co workers, our members of our church, our friends. We live in a self centered world that believes that our relationships, our marriages, our families, our genders are how we relate to one another. Our relationships, our marriages, our families, our genders, and how we relate with one another, they are all considered to be personal choices, private decisions, personal rights, that all belong to me. And like adding and canceling our friends on social media with the click of a mouse, our relationships are a little bit like purchasing and selling a pet. It's my personal right to choose when my relationships begin, dating and marriage, and it's my right and my prerogative to decide when my relationships will come to an end. Divorce. Now, The word divorce in Hebrew literally means to cut off cut off with the implication that a death will result and in the context of marriage this word refers to the legal and the official and the public termination of a marriage covenant the implication there is a death in the relationship and within the context of genesis 1 and 2 where the two become one flesh and a marriage is viewed as a living being a life one life It is the death of a life. And it involves the cutting off and sending away of a spouse. And it's worth noting that divorce as such was not part of the Ten Commandments. There is no, in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt divorce your spouse. And the word divorce does not appear in the Torah or the law, until the final, the fifth book in Deuteronomy. And when it is, and when it appears, it's mentioned in Deuteronomy as a description, not something that God desires or commands. It's given as a description. But it's also, as it's being described, it's being described as something that Hebrew men by the time of Deuteronomy on the plains of Moab, are already doing independent of God's word. They are divorcing their wives by giving them a certificate of divorce. Now, throughout the world and the history of Israel, from Moses to Jesus, everywhere, divorce was a common practice and tradition of men. And it was primarily the legal right of men, not women. And the certificate of divorce was a legal document that listed the grounds for divorce. It was typically signed or authorized by two or three witnesses and also an official, perhaps a religious official, whether it be a priest or a rabbi. And on that document would list the grounds for divorce. And in this way, a divorce certificate was like a property deed or a marriage license. It was a man-made legislation to protect the rights, to regulate divorce, and to regulate the community. And the intent was to legally free a man from further responsibility of his marriage and his wife. When a wife or a woman was sent off and the certificate of divorce was produced and the community authorized or agreed to this, from that moment onwards, the marriage was dead. The covenant was no longer, as Catholics refer to, annulled. And from that moment on, it was as if the man had never been married. He was free from any further burden or responsibility to provide for the wife or perhaps even the children. And then he was free to start all over again, a new beginning, a new start where he could remarry. And in this way, a certificate of divorce was a man made
1: remedy for adultery, polygamy, and discontent in a relationship. And what happened in the history of Israel is because the certificate of divorce
0: is mentioned two times in Deuteronomy. The common belief was divorce is okay with God as long as you get a valid certificate of divorce. Now there's a distinction here. And there's an abuse that's going on. And Jesus is going to point this out. The common abuse is coming to God's Word, proof texting, finding something that validates what you want, and using things that are being described in Scripture and interpreting them as being prescribed by God. The description becoming a prescription. And we see this all over the history, sadly, of Christendom and cults. People will go through Scripture and they will say, look, King David and King Solomon, they had a lot of wives. Abraham had a relationship with his servant. Therefore, it's okay for me to have many wives. Therefore, it's okay for me to have a relationship or a mistress. Drunkenness is in the Bible, therefore it's okay. What's the big deal? We go and we look in Scripture and we pull out verses to justify things that are described. And throughout the Scriptures, in fact, a lot of what God is describing is the depravity and the faithlessness and the selfishness of men. He's not condoning it. He's showing our great need for a Savior and for forgiveness and a right relationship with God. legalistic and self-righteous hearts will do whatever they need
1: to do with God's Word to justify themselves. And by Jesus' time, the legal and religious grounds for a man to divorce his wife,
0: when you go through the rabbinic literature, includes infertility, physical defects, laziness, burning the food, Having difficult in-laws who move into a close vicinity of where you live. You summarize it. And yes, of course, there were debates. The liberals and the conservatives. The conservatives, fewer reasons to get a divorce. Liberal, wider. But ultimately, as you look at this, much of it was about failing to please your husband. Failing to give him satisfaction or contentment. Charles Corle's. New Testament scholar writes, many Jews in the first century believed that you could divorce for any reason. As long as you get a certificate of divorce, which tended to favor wealthy and religious men. Wealthy because you could produce the means. Religious because you had rabbis or priests or people who you knew who would be willing to give you the document or advise you or coach you. No different from the Roman Catholic Church, No different from the history of Christian kings, where any number of Christian kings would divorce their wives because they could not give them a male heir. Can't have a male son. You're gone. You're not qualified. I'll write to the pope. I'll give him money. We'll make things happen and make a deal. I'll get this relationship nulled, and I get a new beginning, a new life, and a new start. And when the pope doesn't agree with me, I'll start my own church and I'll be the head of it. King Henry VIII. Now, as ridiculous as that sounds, we do that all the time. We don't like the counsel we're given. We don't like what God says. I'll start my own church. I'll do it my way. And this is the self-righteous perversion Jesus is talking about in verse 31 when he says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife Let him give her a certificate of divorce. And we see the switch in the emphasis goes and focuses not on what divorce is all about, not on what marriage is about, not what God desires, but how do I get this done in the right way? And with four simple words, Jesus begins to tear down this self-righteous and self-serving manipulation of God's word. He says, but I say to you, or literally, but I myself, the Messiah, the King of heaven, but I myself, the King of heaven, am saying to you. And it's with these words, Jesus makes it clear, our relationships are more than a piece of paper. Our relationships matter to God. Our relationships, from beginning to end, are accountable to Christ and his word, not our self righteous, our manipulative, and destructive interpretation of God's Word. And this brings us to our second point this morning. Christ condemns ungodly, self serving relationships. Christ condemns ungodly, self serving relationships. And why does he do this? Because he's mean? No. Because it goes against the heart and love of God. And because it destroys innocent lives, innocent families, innocent children, and innocent communities. No, we are all guilty. But nonetheless, even as we do stand guilty, self-serving and self-righteous and ungodly relationships are destructive and they lead people away from the only God who can save us. Now when we say ungodly, we are referring to what is contrary to the will and word and character of our holy and eternal creator. And when we use that word self-serving, we're referring to selfish ambition, what scripture refers to as selfish ambition, serving and worshiping ourselves, or serving and worshiping for personal gain as opposed to serving and worshiping God and serving our fellow man. And this is what Jesus, his Messiah, is exposing with this practice of certificates of divorce in his time. And this is what he is condemning when he says to his disciples in verse 32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces or cuts off his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In Jesus' time, and quite frankly still today, in poor communities and immigrant communities, wives who are cut off by their husbands, many have few options for survival. For themselves and for their children to put food on the table and to have a home. And as a result, they are in a position where there is high pressure to remarry in order to provide. There is high pressure, if they cannot remarry, to return to their parents, if their parents will take them. And if remarrying is not an option or returning to parents is not
1: an option. Homelessness, selling themselves to slavery
0: and to prostitution becomes a common practice. And, brothers and sisters, this may seem like the ancient Near East, but among immigrant communities and those who have come to America, it is a common story of wives who are abandoned and then remarry quickly in the old days from advertisements in newspapers and now in the internet to find some place of support and then finding themselves in compromised positions. And Jesus here is speaking. It's worth noting. Who's he talking to here? He's not talking to the women. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to the men. And he's pointing out that regardless of whatever piece of paper you want to wave around, whatever rabbi you got or pope you got to sign off on that piece of paper, whatever two
1: friends you got to say, hey, you're okay. Before God, in God's eyes,
0: except for sexual immorality, You, in God's eyes, are still married, you are still bound, and you are still responsible before God for
1: the entirety of this woman's life. Because in God's eyes,
0: you're still one. And you as the man, God has placed you in a complementary relationship where you are the head and representative, and you're responsible for all of it. And one day, men, we're going to stand before the Lord, and we're going to answer to him. For our homes,
1: our families, our wives, and our children. Jesus goes on to point out, if she remarries under these circumstances,
0: any reason other than sexual immorality, you, the first husband, will be accountable and responsible before God for her violation of the seventh commandment that carries a death penalty and exclusion from the kingdom of heaven. And you as the husband will be accountable and responsible before God if another man marries her for his violation of the seventh command. Now, brothers and sisters, what does Jesus say about people who cause others to stumble
1: and sin? Matthew 18. What does Jesus say? It would be better if a millstone were wrapped around your neck and you were thrown
0: into the bottom of the ocean. We are our brother's keepers. Our actions affect others. They influence others' relationship with
1: the Lord. The Lord sees, He holds us accountable, and He cares. Clear implication, any desire, any decision, any relationship that leads to our sin or leads others into sin, they are ungodly, they are self serving, and they are condemned by God. Why? In Jeremiah 31. Verse
0: 3, this is the chapter that leads us into the new covenant where the Lord brings forgiveness and a new relationship. And the Lord in that chapter points out the remedy, brothers and sisters, is not divorce. The remedy for a new beginning is a right relationship with God, with forgiveness and having a new heart and a new life. And in that chapter, Jeremiah 31, 3b, the Lord God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. This is the remedy, brothers and sisters. It's the love of God that creates us. It's the love of God that saves us. It's the love of God that marries us and brings a man and woman together. It is a love that is holy. It is a love that is faithful. It is a love that is forgiving. It is a love that is selfless. It is a love that is self-giving and eternal. This is the love of God. In Matthew 19, when the Pharisees asked Jesus, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This is what Jesus points them to. He points them to the testimony of God's holy love in our lives, in our marriages, and our relationships. And so we see why Jesus is tearing this apart because the entire spirit of, okay, what's the basis of me to get a certificate of divorce? It's entirely from the beginning, self-serving and selfish and contrary to the heart and spirit of what saves us, the holy love of God. And so in Matthew 19.4, Jesus responds to the Pharisees' question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? This is a reference to Genesis 1.27. And the imago Dei, the image of God that God creates us in, that we were created to reflect the holy love of God among God's other creative and communicable attributes that he gives us. And then Jesus says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is making reference to Genesis 2:24, God's intent and purpose of the unity and the permanence on this earth of marriage between a man and a woman. And the idea that a marriage is a living being, it is a life. And then in verse 6, he says, this is Jesus. So, based on Genesis chapter 1 and 2, they are no longer two but one flesh. This is the testimony of God's holy love. It's unity. It's not cutting off or breaking. And then Jesus concludes, what therefore God has joined together? It's a work of God. Let no man separate. And when we begin, brothers and sisters, to separate what God has united, we are going against the character, the will and the very love of God, and we are in a very, very dangerous place. And this is why throughout Scripture, the Lord condemns idolatrous and self-serving desires and relationships. Desires and relationships that are about serving me. This is about me, and when it doesn't work for me, I'm moving on to something that does work for me. I'm just gonna get a newer upgrade, a better car, a better computer, a better model. The very heart, the very desire behind it, and the relationships that come one after the other. The Lord's not trying to be cruel. He's condemning what is contrary to his character, his will, his word, his love, his desire, and his
1: delight for his children. How many of you would be thrilled if your children
0: grew up and were involved in a relationship that ultimately... Was self serving, self righteous, and strictly feeding an idolatrous desire that left a trail of destruction wherever it went, including all the relationships that come out of it. You have your Bibles. Would you turn with me to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi? And I encourage you this week, if you have an opportunity to read this book, it's only a few chapters, and it is remarkably beautiful. The last book of the Old Testament, it heralds the coming, or prophesies the coming, of John the Baptist, and then ultimately our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and it shows why we so desperately need John the Baptist, and also our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in Malachi chapter 2, Our God, through the prophet Malachi, lays the basis and puts before us why we so desperately need a Savior who can save us from ourselves. Malachi 2.10 Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Okay, where does he start? The Lord God here is exposing and condemning The beginning of all adulterous and unfaithful relationships. Where do they begin? It begins vertically with being adulterous and unfaithful to the Lord. In Judah, it begins with them worshiping other gods. This is where it begins. And from this, we will see this is going to spread in first being unfaithful to the Lord to being unfaithful in all your relationships. I'm going to go to whatever God serves me best, God of fruit, God of lightning, God of car, God of technology. That's where it starts. And then you're going to see how this deteriorates into every possible relationship because there is only one true father, one true God, one who is holy, one who is good, one who is faithful, one who is holy. Verse 13, and this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. God's not listening. But you say, verse 14, why does he not? Why is God not accepting my worship? Why is he not doing what I want? Why is he not answering my prayers? Verse 14b, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. "...to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant." A relationship bound by a promise and a commitment before God and before man.
1: "...did He, the
0: Lord, not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring." So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Who's the Lord talking to here? Men. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. In God's eyes, Adultery, death penalty. Murder, death penalty. Why? It is an act of violence
1: that takes a life. Says the Lord of hosts, so guard
0: yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Brothers and sisters, in Malachi, the Lord spells out why it breaks his heart why it grieves him and why he hates and condemns. Self-righteous, self-serving desires that lead to self-righteous, self-serving relationships that ultimately defile and destroy lives and tear them away from the Lord and tear them away from one another. This brings us to Our final point for this morning Christ restores heavenly relationships. Christ restores heavenly relationships. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, in response to Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage, what do his disciples say in response? They hear this, they hear Jesus rolling this out, they see the responsibility that's given to men in their marriages. And we can say by principle in today's day and age where divorce has become an equal opportunity. Okay, all we've done is we've made it more accessible and available to everyone in an attempt to try and protect women and children, but we still haven't remedied the real problem. Self-serving and destructive Relationships come from self-serving and destructive hearts, and so as the disciples hear Jesus teach on this and respond to the Pharisees who are just concerned about what's the basis of me getting my certificate of divorce, the disciples say, "If such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry." That's where they we can't live up to this, and that raises the question: Who? can live up to God's standard for marriage, which is God's holy love. Faithful, selfless, forgiving, and pure. Wholly devoted to the glory of God. Wholly devoted to the good of our spouse. And the answer is simple, brothers and sisters. There is one and one alone who can do this. And his name is Jesus Christ the eternal and holy Son of God. And on the cross, this is exactly what Jesus did. He demonstrated the faithfulness of God to all His promises. He demonstrated the holy love of God, which is self-sacrificing for the good of others. He demonstrated the eternal nature of God's love from beginning to end. He demonstrated the holiness of God's love as the Son was wholly devoted to the will and word of the Father and was wholly devoted to the salvation of His people, even if it meant rejection, humiliation, pain, sorrow, and ultimately the cutting off of His life, His divorce,
1: So that we could be united with God. Brothers and sisters, the perfect husband, it's our Lord and Savior
0: Jesus Christ, is it not? And this is the groom that God has given the church. This is Christ's love for his church. And this is the life and the love that Christ gives to every man and woman who by faith repents of their sin, and follows Him as Savior and as Lord. And this is why when we come back to Ephesians, the Apostle Paul lays the foundation for heavenly relationships and for a heavenly marriage, and he does it in chapter 2. Chapter 2.13, we read this at Randall and Molly's wedding yesterday. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near By what? Your efforts? Your marriage counselor? Your arrangements? Your good deeds? Buying flowers? No. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And in this way, the Apostle Paul is showing us it is possible to have heavenly relationships, but in one place in one place alone. It's in union with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, there is forgiveness. In Christ, there is faithfulness. In Christ, there is an enduring and lasting and holy love. In Christ, there is a devotion wholeheartedly to the Lord, and therefore, because of that, to a spouse. Not by our strength, brothers and sisters, but through the power of, of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel and the power of Christ in us.
1: Brothers and sisters, there is no shortage
0: of broken relationships. It's easy for us to point our fingers and look at people who have been divorced. But if we're honest with ourselves and we look at our lives, families, in-laws, friends, even people who we have as spouses. And we come before the Lord and we see the Lord's standards. And we see there's no shortage of broken relationships because they are simply the fruit of broken hearts. And I'm not talking my heart got broken because someone didn't love me. I'm talking about hearts that are broken by our sin and our sinful desires that cut us off first from the Lord.
1: And as a result, bring destruction into the lives of others. And yet in love and in
0: mercy and grace, God has provided us with the remedy. And the remedy, brothers and sisters, begins with our sinful hearts. It begins with our union with Christ by faith. And that's why so often in relationship counseling, in marriage counseling, As we call upon men to lead in love, and we call on women to forgive in love, and we call for people to come and say, okay, what you need is you need a completely new relationship. You need the relationship that Christ gives, and it starts with a new heart. And this Christ is made available to you by the blood of the cross. How? One way. You must leave behind your old life. Repentance. And the entirety of your life, starting now, needs to be made new by Christ. And that comes by faith and submission to Christ, following him and obeying his commands rather than living a life where you're serving yourself. And you have a choice. You can follow Christ and be part of his heavenly relationship that he creates, he makes and gives Or you can hang on to your old relationships, which you're in charge of. And you can have this kingdom of broken relationships.
1: Or you can have Christ. It's heartbreaking, brothers and sisters.
0: I'll tell you how many times people choose to hang on to their kingdom of broken hearts and broken relationships. Rather than simply bow and bend the knee and say, Jesus, I've made a mess of things. Would you completely take things over and would you start new? New heart, new life, new relationship, new marriage, new Savior, and new Lord. And yet, nonetheless, brothers and sisters, there is hope. Not because of us, but because of Christ and because He has the power to change hearts and lives. And this is exactly what John Chrysostom pointed to centuries ago. He points that the remedy here and what God is calling and pointing us to is a pure heart. And he points out, John Chrysostom says, he says, For he that is meek and a peacemaker and poor in spirit and merciful. What's he referring to? The Beatitudes, the pure in heart. For he that is meek and a peacemaker and poor in spirit and merciful. It's what Christ makes us how shall he cast out his wife? He that is used to reconciling others, how shall he be at variance with what is his own? So, brothers and sisters, let me give a final word before we close. And I'm going to address right now primarily the men. It applies to everyone, but Jesus was specifically speaking to his disciples in their responsibilities for their marriages and their relationships. Men, we need to lead. We need to cherish our wives. We need to honor the sisters. We need to have holy relationships that draw people to Christ, not away from Christ. But there is only one way that happens. And as you go through Ephesians, Paul makes that clear. We need to walk in newness of life. We need to walk worthy of the gospel. We need to walk in Christ. And that, by necessity, as we read at the beginning, leaves no room for impurity, immorality, ugly talking, words that tear down, selfish desires. Paul makes that point. This needs to be put off. It needs to be cut off as far away from you as possible. And you need to submit and walk in the Spirit of God, not grieving Him. There is no place for that. There is only place for Christ and His words. And the only way we're going to grow in doing that, brothers, is if we're growing in Christ. We can't stay the same. If we're not being filled with His word, the truth and love, and being built
1: up into the image of Christ, we are tearing down lives and relationships and people.
0: But if in Christ, by faith, we are willing to let go of our selfish desires, our self-righteous efforts and pursuits, and instead bend the knee. If we're willing to pick up the cross and deny ourselves and follow Christ in us and through us, the love of Christ will bring heavenly relationships that will testify to the world that our Savior is not dead, but He is indeed alive. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, hard words from You, and yet words that rescue and give power and give a new life. Thank You for Your mercy and grace. Forgive us, heal us, renew us, and set us free, O Lord, from sinful hearts and desires and relationships
1: that are far, far, far from the goodness of the gospel. In your name we pray, amen.